My conversation today is with author, theurgist, and Freemason, P.D. Newman. Along with being an in-demand educator and speaker on the Masonic lecture circuit, Newman has released a string of successful books discussing the use of psychoactive substances in ceremonial and conscious spiritual evolution from antiquity to the modern day. His works include Alchemically Stoned, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry, and Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT. His upcoming book, however, Theurgy, Theory and Practice, will deal with Iamblichian theurgy. I sat down with PD to have a fascinating conversation on theurgy, Neoplatonism, Orthodox Christianity, and much more. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Pretty interesting. Very excited to learn that you're you're um, you're into theurgy, man. How'd you get into? Uh, did you were you into that stuff before the Golden Dawn or? No, um, I so I got into theurgy proper. Um, I guess that would have been about five years ago, and it was from Yamblicus. Um I had read, you know, you see quotes scattered around in the texts and. Uh, I converted to orthodoxy. Um, I got really interested in, in Greek orthodoxy and it was that stuff really that made me say, okay, I need, cause I didn't really get it. I didn't understand. Um, it's so different. It's not like Catholicism. It's not like any of the Protestant branches of Christianity. And so I decided if I'm really going to grasp this, I need a firm foundation in what they were reading, what they had access to. So that's how it started. And I started with uh, Iamblichus, Proclus, Damascius, Olympiodorus. And once I figured out what was going on with that stuff, I was in love. And I started working backwards from there into um, Plato and then eventually into the pre-Socratics, which is, I'm really, these days, I'm more interested in the pre-Socratics than I am the Neoplatonists. Um, We can talk about that in the the interview if you want to, but but I feel like what the Neoplatonists are doing is closer in spirit to what people like Parmenides and Empedocles were doing, who are, I think, my reading of their fragments, I really feel like they're magical texts. They're not, um, they're not philosophy proper. A good indication of that is the fact that, like Homer and Hesiod, they wrote them in dactylic hexameter. So they're technically invocations. Xenophanes did this too. Um, after that, they kind of stopped writing in dactylic hexameter and started to present their ideas. Like Aristotle says, he says, if you have something to say, just say it, don't try and encode it or, or put it into some kind of a, a poetic fashion. And uh, I'm right. The opposite. You know, I'm, I, I want the, I want the text that when I read them, I can feel it hitting other centers than just my intellect. And I get that from the pre-Socratics. And uh, I really feel like people like Iamblichus and Proclus especially um, retain some of that. Whereas for Plato, a lot of that went out the window. You know, Before Plato, everybody goes down. It's all catabatic. Um, they go to the underworld to receive supernatural wisdom that way. Um, like, for example, Parmenides, he's known as the, the father of logic. Um, and he claims to have gotten the laws of logic by traveling to the underworld and meeting a goddess who gave them to him. So the means by which he acquired them seems to outstep logic itself. It doesn't sound log- like a logical thing at all, but that's how supernatural wisdom was acquired. And then by the time we get to Plato, he allegorizes that descent and makes it into when we incarnate that's what he's saying is the descent to the underworld. This is the underworld. There's no further down you can go. And once he did that, catabasis went out the wind. Catabasis. I, my uh, my philosophy teacher, she was uh, real southern. She'd say catabasis, and you know. <laughs> so I still I still say it that way. But uh, but catabasis went out the window, and uh, and, and I'm really interested in that, uh, especially from an orthodox perspective, because. Um, 
number one, Christ, before he ascends, he descends into Hades. And a lot of people don't think about it this way, but for Christ to descend into Hades is to confirm the entire Greek model. He's saying Hades is a real place. They got this right. You know, so for it to be confirmed in orthodoxy, uh, in my opinion, is almost like a free pass to to completely explore this stuff. Um, I'd explore it anyway, because I I feel like I'm more of a a perennialist than a strict, you know, just a strict Christian. And my my perception of Christianity is admittedly very different than than most people's um but uh, well, I, I can appreciate that because i'm 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 greek so okay awesome. <laughs> yeah yeah i actually uh my so my father's um, first generation on his side uh, he, he came here from greece but um i was i was uh baptized and raised catholic but okay. i'm actually kind of in the process of uh of an orthodox conversion that's been happening uh over the course of the last five years that's awesome because of exactly what you're what you're talking about you know i had reservations because while i i speak greek i'm not it's not like native to me the the same way it is for the rest of my family and so uh you know i i can't speak as fast my accent isn't as good and i'm not like thoroughly thoroughly fluent Mm-hmm. but you know i can speak it i get around alone when i go to greece and stuff um and i can read some of right because it's we're talking like ancient greek so not even modern greek speakers really understand it but i can right. I, like I two can, different languages right i mean there's some stuff that, that there's a lot of overlap definitely a lot of overlap but some stuff is just like this is entirely different i've never heard this word before or read it really um uh but you know my my one reservation towards towards like fully going to orthodox was that i i didn't want to feel um i didn't want to feel like an an outsider there was a, l- a little bit you know imagine that somebody who's greek you know <laughs> would feel like an outsider it does feel like that though when you get in there and it's a completely different culture that they maintain so i felt the same way my 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 first exposure was the greek orthodox and uh, a friend of mine who is also a mason we were joining at the same time and uh they told him they didn't know I was a Mason, but he told them that he was. And they told him, well, you can't be a Mason and, and join this church. That's against the rules. And uh, so I said, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to. You don't even know what Masonry is. You know, you don't have the right to tell me I can't be a Mason when I know full well that it's compatible. Um, so I ended up going to um, the Orthodox Church of America, OCA, which was actually um charter you know it's not a charter but it was it was created by the russian orthodox church which i don't know if you're familiar with like the russian martinist movement and how a lot of there was a lot of mysticism happening in russia and masonry wasn't frowned upon in the same way that it it was at least in the greek orthodox church i first was exposed to so you're you're all on on sort of on the level with this stuff right there's no there your church is full aware that you're a a a a regular mason and stuff like that cool that's awesome they they are they know i'm a a lecture about uh, all these different occult topics and it's never been an issue now there are a couple of guys you know that are my age um that like to you know it gets back to you that that like to talk about how i'm into really dark stuff and um you know i'm into african traditional african and diaspora religions palomayombe and voodoo and centuria and um, i'm not shy about posting those kinds of things and those those folks follow me and see that so i get i hear you know stuff gets back to me that they don't necessarily like it but my priest has no problem with it at all and uh actually you know he came to dinner one night and we talked about everything about my interests and he saw my book collection and all the grimoires and uh and he had no problem with it you know he said yeah. this is my journey and it's between me and me and god so i, yeah. I, I said that's the way it should be and i that felt is, at home you know i mean there's that's a priest that's right. a priest right there you know and and that's the issue that i was having actually with a, a um uh the local uh i'm kind of in the middle of nowhere but the yeah, um i know the feeling you know, right the closest city to me is about an hour and change away so but that was my local um 
Orthodox church that I was kind of talking to a priest there and it was the same thing, you know, and I like, I had my foot in the door and everything. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's just like, if you're going to ask me to, to sort of, you know, demit, resign from from masonry, it's just a no go. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie to you. Right. That's the, (laughs) that's, I mean, that's the antithesis of, uh, of, of what it, what it means to engage in a spiritual path. So I'm just going to step back for now, but that's, that's really cool. That's really interesting too. I, I was not aware even of that church that you're, that you're mentioning. OCA. Yeah. It's a, we only have one in the state of Mississippi. There's one Greek Orthodox and that's the other one I mentioned. And then there's the OCA and it's in Columbus, Mississippi. It's about an hour and about an hour and a half from me. And, um, and we're actually losing our priest. He's, he he's taken a a position somewhere else because it, it's admittedly a tiny church. There's not it, it, all of the the overhead is taken care of by two two wealthy families that kind of started the church and would have uh, they would have um, what do they call it uh, typica typica services without the priest there, just basically re- the readings and. Um, and that's what brought the priest, but it was known from the beginning. He wasn't a permanent priest, so he he won't be there much longer. And I'm not sure what the future of it is going to look like. But now that I've been baptized, I mean, uh, and received into the church, the, the Greek Orthodox one that I was visiting before, um, they just, they're now they're okay with the, the whole masonry thing and told me that I was welcome to come and they would serve me communion. So yeah, it's not like I'm going to be without a church, but it, there, I think there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve um, because it's different. Um, like orth, Orthros, uh, we don't do Orthros in OCA, and uh, I know that they do in, in the Greek. So um, I, there's a lot I've got to learn. I still have to learn a lot about it anyway. Yeah, there's there's um, again, like you're saying that that learning curve. It's it, there's a tremendous amount. Um, and it is, it is very, very different mm-hmm. from Catholicism and very, very different from, uh, Protestantism, particularly Southern Baptist. So yeah, it's so. very different than anything I have ever seen. Um, but right. we, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm used to, I'm, I'm used to like ritual, like exactly. mass as a ritual. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that was, that's Catholicism. Right. But it, it's just basically there's, they don't, they don't, at least for Greek Orthodox, Catholicism to me doesn't delve as deeply into this sort of mysticism of mm-hmm. Christianity that lies in the personal devotion. The personal devotion in Catholicism is much more, I, I want to say, it's it's kind of, it's just not there in my experience. Now, I grew up in, in Catholic New York. I'm a Yankee, forgive mm-hmm. my blood. <laughs> but, you know, I grew up um, in Pennsylvania, so I'm, I wasn't okay. far from you. There you go. But uh, it was just a different culture of Catholicism up there. There really wasn't, you were a Catholic on Sunday, you know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> that was kind of it. Whereas like all of the, the mystic practices in Catholicism pretty much stopped in and around the middle ages and especially into the 1800s. But you do have like the Rhine mystics with Hildegard von Bingen and uh, Nicholas of Cusa and Meister Eckhart, you know, those guys are, are solid. Um, and actually, my favorite Christian, living Christian author is Catholic, uh, G- Jim Barella. Um, Jim Barella and Jean Hani are, are two French Catholic uh, authors that really focus on Neoplatonism, um, Hermitism, alchemy, how all of those things wow. kind of mixed. I, I highly recommend both of those authors if you're if you're interested in reading that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to stop you for a second. This is great. This is how I tend to do. This is how I tend to do the podcast. I try and make them like conversations like this. Ooh, yeah. doesn't, doesn't always work because some people just want to be interviewed. Right. But I think this is great. Um, otherwise, I'll probably just roll with this if that's cool with you. Unless yeah. there's any, if unless there's anything that you have that you've been talking about that you want me to leave out completely. No, I mean I'm I'm open to discuss. Uh... Any anything about? I'm I'm not shy about my research. Yeah. Okay, great. The book, that, the book that's going to be following this Native American one is actually going to be on uh, my journey into Palomayombe. So eventually, everyone's even going to know about that stuff. Wow, awesome, 
Awesome. Cool. So, I mean, do you have, I'm just curious, do, do you have like a, uh, a formal background in uh, philosophy or, or um, uh, I guess, Hellenistic studies, history, things no, like that? I was, a, I was a psychology major in college and, and I, I, I figured out real quick that I didn't want to do that because I don't, um, I was into Freud and Young and Silber and Spielrein and Rank and the, uh, those guys. And uh, I figured out real quick that that's not what psychology is anymore. It's all behaviorism and uh, the behaviorism, in my opinion, is the materialist equivalent of, of psych for psychology. Um, so after that, I changed my major to philosophy and uh, but I never I never finished. So I I didn't get past, you know, philosophy 101. And my readings have all been just from me reading, um, working through everything I could find uh, from, like I said, first with the Neoplatonists, then back to Plato and then to the pre-Socratics. But once we get past Olympiodorus, you know, I really, I don't even know much about philosophy, to be honest, past that. I know, I know more about people like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, um, than I do any any of the you know Whitehead and Locke and uh, I'm sorely uneducated, but mainly because my approach is is theurgy, not necessarily philosophy. Right. I mean, I I'm I definitely understand that. It tends to be <clears throat> tends to be much more uh, my thing these days too. I, it was in, interesting to hear what you had to say about uh, the pre-Socratics. How's that connected in 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 your research with um with the Orphic mysteries? Do you think that there's a there's sort of a through current there? Or? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the so the Orphic, um, the Orphic current is very prevalent in the pre-Socratic model, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with Algis or Algis Utsdavenis. Um, yes, yeah. Probably my he was one of my favorite authors. Um, but he stresses that, you know, and he's got a little thin, um, what you would call a, a monograph on the Orphic mysteries and Platonism and basically lays it out and shows how Platonism proper is not this kind of stale philosophical approach. It's very ritualized and it's very concerned with, um, with, um, even Catabasis, his trips to the underworld, you know, he, he stresses Inanna, Ishtar's, her, her, her being the prototype for this model, but he explains it in terms of Orpheus. And when you read these texts, they're constantly referring back to Orphic texts we no longer have. Um, yeah. And when we talk about the Orphic hymns, um, you know, I think there's evidence that, that some of them not in the form that we receive them, but some of them go back at least to the eighth eighth century BC. Um, but the form we receive them in is probably no later than the second century, around the same time we got the Chaldean oracles. So while it's in the same spirit, uh, it's you really have to be able to tease the Orphic stuff out of the pre-Socratic stuff, the pre-Socratic model. But it's there. I mean, what Orpheus is saying. Uh, are you familiar with the? Uh, um, that is it the Derveni papyrus? Derveni is that is that right? Not ringing a bell for me. I think it's Derveni papyrus. Um, but it, it it's a it was a papyrus that was discovered that is um, it's an orf it's an explanation from an Orphic perspective of what a lot of the myths mean and and how there's double meaning to them. So it's it introduces and I believe it's around around the eighth century. Uh, I could be wrong. It's been so long since I read that one, but I'm pretty sure it's the Derveni papyrus, and um, and it 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 shows right off the bat that there's an esoteric aspect to these myths. Right. They're not right. just surface stories, even though as surface stories they're incredibly useful and and full of wisdom. But there's another way to read them, and uh, I think that's that's important to all of these traditions. You know. Yeah, it's it that that's the main thing is being able to and I think I think in a sense after um this this rubs a lot of people the wrong way especially people like us who have spent a lot of time in in the hellenistic stuff and and platonic stuff. I, I'm not a huge fan of Aristotle. 
I'm not, I couldn't, I'm not going to, there's no way me, right? Who the hell am I going to devalue the work of, of, of a brilliant, of a genius of history, Aristotle. I'm just not a fan of his, I, you know, I, somebody referred to it perfectly for me. Aristotle's conception was the first philosophical error. And that, mm -hmm. that is, that is the way that I feel about it. And I think that that through, you know, figures like William of Ockham, Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know it's created this nominalist kind of this or that right. uh predisposition right. it's it's a knee-jerk response in terms of our mentality when in reality you know there i i kind of use this 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 analogy in in nature right nothing's one thing nothing's right. one thing in nature you know tree uh, gives oxygen, absorbs, you know, uh, uh, carbon dioxide. It is shelter. It can give fire. It gives fruit. And nothing mm -hmm. serves one purpose. And and uh, I I find that particularly like, and you're talking about, you know, catabatic descend into the underworld. Well, you've got the 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 Orpheus and Eurydice myth, which is mm -hmm. for me, it was the first myth of underworld travels that I had ever heard being greek and there's something to me that it, it all just relates the underworld right. being this kind of realm of dreams and of of an mm -hmm. inner state and this kind of uh, uh interior world that existed not only in an individual but in the collect the collective consciousness it existed before we had language it is pre-verbal Mm -hmm. And so in other it's words, it's more universal too. When you start crossing cultures, um, the dead are, it, it's, it, it's ancestor worship that becomes gods eventually in these traditions, but it begins with ancestor underworld type stuff. Um, this is true in Africa, uh, in Congo, where they talk about, they call it Kalunga, but Kalunga is, um, it's the underworld, and it's the, also the word they use for the Atlantic Ocean. So it means water. You know, it's this idea that if we're on land, or the de the dead are right the opposite; they're in water, and they say things like they walk backwards and talk backwards. You know, so it's got this real um, a, a, a reversal of norms, a, a lot like Carnival or, or Purim in Judaism. Everything's flip flopped, and. Uh, and I, that's, I think that's more universal than the going up, the ascension. You know, we've, of course, the ascension motifs have completely taken over by this point. But a good example is people coming down from the heavens, you know, angels or these kind of uh, different supernatural entities and cultures. There's more evidence preceding Plato that most of them were coming up or the person was going down. But this, this trips to heaven and, 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 heaven to earth kind of uh, model is new is fairly new approach to this problem so yeah i agree 100 percent. and you might not know there's a and to give you an idea of just how universal it is there's even this a, a native american myth that they call the indian orpheus tradition oh, wow, that's where, awesome. where he loses his wife and has to go down there and get her and ends up messing up and can't bring I mean, it's the, it's the same story and it's happening in on American soil, you know, before Spanish contact. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting to me is, is a couple of things. One of the things that you were saying earlier on about the pre-Socratics and how they, they, they existed um, or at least their, their mental environs had a certain poetry to them. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that we're losing. And I think it's also something that you find in, it comes from that same place. It comes from the, the, that center of universality that is accessible within the individual. And I think mm -hmm. that that's that that it is the place from which all creativity stems. Like, for instance, I've I've said this a million times on this podcast and other guests have too, unprompted. Music is a perfect analogy for it because I'm using sound to create to put what I'm feeling into you. Mm -hmm. It transcends the the, the specificity of of the word but it still communicates the universality of feeling and that's very interesting to me that orpheus was like the first musician you know right. or the, the penultimate musician and really i find that a lot of creative people particularly musicians visual artists they end up in magic because it's really yeah. that that universality that's pulling us towards um it's that it's the impetus towards mm -hmm. magic and the other thing to me is that i 
really am fascinated by the trajectory. Most people don't understand this of the, so you have Platonism. And then from that, you have the early, middle, late Platonists. Mm-hmm. We call the late Platonists, starting with Plotinus, typically the Neoplatonists. Neoplatonists, right. You've got Iamblichus, who kind of expounds this, this philosophy, at least of the extant records we have. He's expounding this philosophy uh, of theurgy. That's all predicated on this Neoplatonic cosmology, the way that everything works, you know, the Archontes and the, the Demiurgos and these kinds of structures. And then from that, you get this, this Christian outcropping, which mm-hmm. is, it, it functions, particularly within the Gnostic schools, primarily within the context of Neoplatonic cosmology. Right, it, it right. Exists- there were Gnostics at, at, at Plotinus's school passing around um, Gnostic texts. And of course, I'm sure you're aware of um, Plotinus's chapter against the Gnostics, but there's a great researcher he passed away too soon, Mazur, Zeke Mazur, um, Alexander Mazur, I think is his, his first name. Um, but he he basically broke down Plotinus's system and ha- the process by which he purports one one unites with the one and there's a there's a discrepancy in there that is inexplicable without recourse to the gnostic texts that were circulating in his school at the time so while he he you know rejected a lot of those texts he still incorporated the ritual that they were propounding in those texts and found it as the means by which to attain what he wanted, which was union with the divine. So um, it's not as cut and dry as a lot of scholars would lead you to believe. There was a lot of crossover with the Gnostics. And and even when we're not talking about the Gnostics, when we're just talking about the Christians, you know, the first... Uh, the first real picture we get of what the Christians were doing, because remember in the beginning, there's like a secret society that kept everything hidden. Um, and the first picture we get comes from a philosopher named Celsus, who wrote this book um, against the Christians. And in it, he basically breaks down the ritual they're doing. And this ritual is a, a psychedelic ritual. They're taking a an ointment that he calls the white unguent of the tree of life and anointing their body with it. And once they do this, the soul leaves the body and is able to travel through the seven heavens until it reaches the eighth sphere, which is, of course, the noose. Um, and it, it's people, when, when, for example, when Origen, or, or some people say Origen, but when Origen um, rebutted this, he wrote a huge rebuttal against Celsus's book. And uh, in his rebuttal, he doesn't say, no, we're not using that ointment. No, we're not descending, ascending through the heavens. What he said was, the your order of the planets is wrong. You've got the heavens out of order. That was his real beef with it, was that it was, he saw it as misinformation, you know, Um and uh, there's a great researcher, April. Uh, oh, her name escapes me right now. But she wrote a paper that was in that um, in that practicing gnosis book that Brill published several years back. But in it, she yeah, I, that out that it's it's just the planets. But that the knowledge of the the order of the planets that's the secret knowledge. It's not a mystery that you have to travel through the heavens to get where you just like with um, with uh, um Paul when Saint Paul yeah. ascended. I was know, I was caught up to the third heaven and, and right. stuff like the that. The third yeah. heaven, it's still he's not on, on the third planet, Terry Realm. One of the heavens for the for that tradition is all of the seven planets. So once you have you have uh, sublunar space, that's one heaven. You have the this realm of the seven planets, that's the second heaven, which is the realm of causality, because the planets are causal in that system. And the third heaven is what what another school might call the eighth heaven, the eighth sphere, the noose. But it's it's still the same the same system. Yeah, and it's uh, it's again interesting to me that that this is kind of completely gone from a lot of uh, people's understanding of of what the the worldview that Christianity really grew out of, because it only it, it you can only really make sense of. The role of of the Christos, the the you know the anointed, the chosen, mm-hmm. um, within that cosmology, because it's 
at least in my conception, and I feel comfortable talking about this with you, even though you know our opinions may differ. Um, in my conception, Yamlich's theurgy was attempting to work with the cosmocrators, you know, the 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 uh, planetary deities and and the the the, the wheel work of um you know the 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 sovereigns the rulers of the material creation mm-hmm. and i think that says something about the orphic descent and the failure whereas you have the the christos which is kind of this second orpheus that comes descends and succeeds mm-hmm. he comes back having redeemed and then is able to you know, ascend and be seated at the right hand. And that's, that's an interesting point. I, I never yeah. really thought about it as the successful answer to Orpheus, but that's a very interesting perspective. I like that. I mean, to be honest with you, it, it, it it's just something that came to my conscious as a, as a, uh, a product of our conversation just now. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not often I can really riff with somebody who knows their, their shit and i feel like that's happening right now the <laughs> yeah, same but, you know yeah. I, I talk to myself and jamie mainly with this stuff. same same exactly me too but uh you you essentially have this idea where christ or the idea of of the christ right not in a legalistic sense i'm not trying to be dogmatic but mm-hmm. just as an idea that it's basically telling you that or or trying to admonish well, it's it's giving you a something that circumvents having to use that machinery, and and what I find really interesting, Grace. Right, right, exactly. And what what I find very interesting, uh, particularly in things like Platonism, things like Masonry, things like uh, Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. capital O and and lowercase O, small O Orthodoxy, there is, um an exhortation to virtue, right? I'm not talking about pious morality. I'm talking about Plato's virtue. Right. Virtus, you know, exactly. Real, the, real manliness. Right. And, and, and the walking of that path as a sort of blueprint to transcend it, at, at least, at least in a prerequisite kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, it's, it's still present in the initiatory model in the Orthodox church, you know, once you're received into the church and become a catechumen after that, you go through the three degrees and they were even called three degrees in some of these early texts. Um, But it's those same processes. Um, The first degree is baptism and that's the, the purgation. um, And we see that in the Eleusinian mysteries before you become a mystis or an epopt, you have to go down to the to the sea, bathe, and then sacrifice a piglet. You know this is a that's a that's a purgation. That's a, cl- a cleansing that's taking place. So the the baptism represents that cleansing and the anointment. Just like we said just a moment ago with Kelsus's text, they anointed themselves before they went through the seven heavens. That second process, that anointing, is is going through that just in a different way. And then finally communion, which is union with deity. And, um, you know, in, in the, the early church fathers, they called, they had different names for these. Um, the first degree baptism, they called, um, I think it was the second degree they called physica and the third degree they called theologia. Um, and so, but the the first one is escaping me right now. It'll come to me in a moment. But it's still that same model that uh, hasn't gone anywhere. It's just whether or not you're able to tease it out of it, tease out what 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 they've gotten it from. And I, I truly believe that without a firm foundation, in at least the Neoplatonists, I feel like the real function uh, and mechanism of Christianity is elusive it's almost impossible to put your finger on and a lot of platonists will you know point at the christ figure and say well this isn't consistent with what plato was saying but the early christians like we can take justin martyr is a good example justin martyr he says that he says christianity is the most ancient religion in the world and he says that uh that those who some people call godless so long as they have faith in the logos, 
are Christians. And he goes on to name Heraclitus, Socrates. He's saying these are what we see as Christians. We've gotten a long way from that, but that's that the real idea behind it is platonic. You know, when Christ says this do in remembrance of me, when he says remembrance, it's a conjugation of anamnesis that he uses. So if (laughs) anyone who's educated at that time, they would have been educated in Plato. And the minute they heard Christ say that conjugation of anamnesis, that's that's a form of meta language that mm-hmm. just by saying that one word conjures all of Plato. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it brings all of Plato into the picture, um, and and it and it lets them know that what he's saying, what this ritual that I'm saying to do, he's they. It lets them know that it has something to do with the soul remembering its divinity, and, and that you. I'm sorry, I don't feel like. It's graspable without that key to understand that ritual. Communion is platonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Abs- there's so many uh, Christian themes. I, th- I think it's like um, maybe it might have been Tertullian who, who came up with the idea of uh, uh, tria persona, una substantia, you know, three three persons and one substance. So much of the early church doctrine that, I mean, just it's not in the texts a lot of the times, but was a product of the, 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 you know, discourse or or discursive methods of, um, of the early church fathers comes from a Neoplatonic background. And um, the Trinity is a great example. That's that's the hypostases, right? The three hypostases. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you've got a book coming out now, uh, theurgy and theory and practice, right? With inner traditions, it'll be out in December. That's fantastic. So, what what part of the of the the traditions uh, for people who maybe aren't familiar uh, with the word theurgy? What are you going to deal with uh, in that book? Um, it's already written, uh, and basically, there there aren't a ton of books on theurgy. There are a lot of books on Platonism and Neoplatonism, but rarely on theurgy. And the ones that are deal very little with what Hans Louis called the the rite of elevation, this ascension motif that they're doing. Um, at best, you'll get discussions on, and, the, and this is just as important, but it's not that aspect. You'll get discussions on statue animation, uh, you know, a galma animation, uh, and things like that. Pur- purification rituals will get mentioned, but that rite of elevation, if they mention it at all, is is. Uh, uh, one sentence and no explanation of where it comes from or why they're doing it that way. And I had read, I was working my way up, you know, from Plotinus and Porphyry and Porphyry, he's the one that really lays out the theory. And he does that in uh, On the Cave of the Nymphs, which is an esoteric comment on uh, chapter 13 or book 13 of Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus pulls into the, uh, the, the port and he sees that cave that has two entrances. And Porphyry explains this in terms of the cosmos, saying that there are two gates in the heavens. One, and Homer says this, he says, one through which men pass and the other through which gods pass. Um, and so Porphyry, he shows that what this means is one is for incarnation and the other is for excarnation. When you've been perfected and divinized and you can leave this material sphere, it's no longer necessary for the education of your soul. That's the theory. So what's the practice? How do you do it? Um, so from Porphyry, you know, I read all of Iamblichus and which is Iamblichus is one of the best sources for any of this stuff, but he still doesn't break down the ritual. He talks a lot about rituals you know, from different cultures, different religions, and shows how priests, all priests are basically hermetic theurgists if they're doing it right. But again, he never talks about the ritual. And it wasn't until I got to the works of Proclus and started working through Proclus, and I got to his commentary on Plato's Republic. And this is where he finally lets the cat out of the bag and says, this is what the ritual is. This is what it looks like. This is why we do it. And you know, p- part of what I really found fascinating about it is just like the theory was presented in in Homeric terms, Proclus does the same thing. Um, and it's because in, in his commentary on the Republic, um, he addresses 
something Socrates says. Socrates says that we have to do away with Homer and Hesiod because they're myths with all the rape and adultery that, you know, know, have multiple levels of interpretation. But he, he, and I think he was being slightly um, sarcastic, uh, in my opinion, um, because Socrates, I think, would know better than to say we have to get rid of Homer. But he says, and I think he's trying to push it to the end and say, all right, well, then if we're going to do this, have this perfect republic, we have to get rid of these poets because they're bad for the youth. The youth don't need to hear myths about fathers being murdered by their sons and things like that. And and Proclus rejects this. And he says, he says that we cannot do away with them because because there there is deeper meaning to these these uh, myths, and the ones that are the more repugnant are the ones that have the more divine truths that are veiled under that repugnance to turn turn away the unworthy, basically, similar to how the tantrics do it. You know, the the more pristine the doctrine, the more it's going to be hidden under things like with references to menstrual blood and and skulls and things like that, and 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 it's very similar in this according to Proclus. And he says that uh, his teacher, Syrianus, told him when he initiated him, he said um, that this ritual, this rite of elevation we do to become theurgists comes from Homer. So the theory comes from Homer and the practice does. The practice comes from book 23 of Homer's Iliad, where Achilles their Achilles' best friend, his partner, Patroclus, has been murdered in the war. And Achilles, he's distraught. He lays down and goes to sleep. And he has a dream that Patroclus comes to him and chastises him. He says, look, I'm I'm stuck in Hades, but if you would just get off your ass and perform my funeral rites, I could be up there with the other warriors living in the glorious highest higher spheres. And um, so when he wakes up, what he does is he does this funeral pyre, this this funeral ritual for him where he sacrifices 12 um, prisoners of war, throws them on the fire, um, and he does this invocation of of the west and north winds beforehand. And um, he explains that these invocations are purificatory. They're they're calling the, the these winds to purify him in the story. He can't get the fire lit, so he invokes the wind to give him some breeze to get this fire going. But Proclus says that this is symbolic and it's part of the ritual. So he he tells them, you know, you do the sacrifices, you do the invocations of the winds, and um, and if, he does this the ritual all night long. And Proclus doesn't mention this; he doesn't comment on this. But in Homer, he does this ritual until he sees the morning star ascend on the horizon. Now, the morning star is, of course, Venus, and Venus is uh, Ishtar, Inanna, and Inanna is the prototype, like we said earlier, for this catabatic model. And the reason, you know, we, and and especially in hermetic groups, you think of Hermes as being the psychopomp who can get in and out of the underworld. That wasn't the case in ancient Babylon. It was Inanna, and it was because they didn't, in the beginning, they didn't realize the morning star and the evening star uh, the difference, they thought they were the same stars, you know, but whereas just like the sun and the other visible planets, they rise in the east and set in the west. They follow the, this ecliptic. Venus doesn't do that. It rises in the east and then disappears, goes back under the horizon and rises in the west and sets down. So you have the same planet appearing in, in the east and the west irregularly. And what this said to the Babylonians that they they encoded in this Ishtar myth is that it's the one planet that can get in and back out because nothing, if you're not in the underworld, you're not getting in there. And if you're in there, you ain't getting out. That's that's that was the way that they thought about it. Um, and so Venus, when he sees Venus ascend, the morning star ascend, that's his signal that Patroclus's soul is leaving Hades. Um, I don't know if he thought about it as it's leaving with Venus or it's leaving as Venus, but that was his signal. And after that, he he's he's comfortable enough to end the ritual and he lays down and he goes back to sleep. But that's the that's the ritual, this death ritual. Um, 
and it, it's a, it's a, it, it, I don't know if they did it once, like, is it just an initiation or if this was something that was done regularly? Um, when you read in the, the hermetic texts, which were obviously influenced by theurgy and encounter influenced one another. But there are a couple of hermetic texts that show up in the Nag Hammadi library. And in one of those texts, it gives a, a specific timing when to do it. You know, it, sa it says you have to do it under the sign of Virgo, and you have to do it when Mercury is within, I think, 14 degrees of the sun, um, which basically means as close as it can get without going combust, without going, right. you can't see the planet. Um, and yeah. So there's a timing for it, uh, which could mean that they do it every year at that time, or that's just when they can initiate someone into it. But, you know, and there's this prevalent idea that Plotinus rejected ritual and didn't think you had to do any rituals. He wasn't as hostile to ritual as people make him out to be. I don't know if you're familiar with the story where um, he's invited to go to to see this Egyptian priest who can invoke his daemon. And he's like, yeah, let's go. You know, he doesn't say, fuck that. I, I'm not interested in that. I'm, the priest should come to me. He does say stuff like that when they offer to take him to, to the Panathenaea festival. He says, no, they should come to me. But he goes to this priest and the priest does this invocation. And he's shocked to find out that unlike the classic hierarchy where we have men and men uh, have above men are heroes and then you have daemons and then you know the, this this hierarchy that is prevalent in neoplatonism it's not a daemon that's that rules plotinus a god shows up and this the priest panics at this and strangles the birds that he strangles using. strangles a chicken <laughs> yeah he strangles it to get rid of it because it, it freaks him out but uh but the implication is that Plotinus is already a daemon, is basically what they're saying. He, he's, he's a diamond. He's transcended the hero realm, even, and, and has become something something more than that. Um, and especially by the time we get to the Chaldean oracles, um, you know, the, the, the story is that the Chaldean oracles were delivered by Hecate and Apollo, who were the two principal deities of, of divination, of oracles, oracular practice back then. But they're delivered by Plato. It's the soul of Plato that appears to this father-son team of magicians called the Giuliani. They're both named Julian. Um, but it's Plato that appears in the shape of an X. And his soul is as in the form of an X speaking to them, dictating what Apollo or Hecate says. And this X thing, it comes from Plato's description of the world soul. You know, and he says it's it's... It's these two interlocking circles that create an X from the side. Well, those circles, that's exactly what Porphyry is talking about when he's explaining the theory of theurgy. He says that, you know, you've got the, the ecliptic, which is the zodiac circle. And then you've got the circle of the Milky Way that wraps around it the other way. And it creates this X with two points of intersection. So... Going all the way back to Pythagoras, and, and this is universal also, part of the it's part of the Native American tradition here in the Southeast. They call it the path of souls, which is the Milky Way. And there are two portals in the sky in certain constellations that get you on there. But that X, it, it's, it, it's pivotal to the, the theory behind theurgy. Those two intersections are two gates that allow you to get on the Milky Way, just like Pythagoras is alleged, you know, Pythagoras didn't leave any writings, but uh, but he is quoted by other people as saying that souls go to the Milky Way when they die. That's where they live before and after an incarnation. And that's exactly what, what they're saying, what Porphyry was saying. So there's a lot of ritual even before we get to theurgy proper um, in Platonism. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It also reminds me of uh, of um, the the Masonic symbol. Uh, I always think of that every time I think of the the uh, the cave of the nymphs, uh, the, the Saints John. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Like you know, the the circumpunct uh, book ended by the two lines: the Tropics mm -hmm. of Cancer and the Tropics of Capricorn. And I'm I'm pretty sure that's that's what's identified to be like the the gates that the that's souls right. enter. And the gates that the souls 
exit from. I, I mean, I'm, it's I'm in different places for the Hellenists because of the tropical astrology. You know, right. Porphyry, uh, he's using the Thema Mundi chart, which I didn't know anything about this. Jamie had to teach me about this. But this Thema Mundi chart is a theoretical chart. We know it's theoretical because the placements of Venus and Mercury are impossible in real life. Mm -hmm. But it shows the order of the heavens, which is, like I said earlier, the real mystery in these systems. And he places the gates in Cancer and Capricorn um, because he, he calls uh, Cancer the gate of the moon. That's the lowest. And then you have to climb through all of the other planets that lead to Capricorn. That's the ascent. That's why the planets are out of order. And the sun is missing because you only pass Leo on the way down, not on the way up. So there's no sun in the ascent, but the other planets are represented. And Saturn's there twice, naturally, because you have to go through Aquarius to get to Capricorn. Well, the interesting thing also, too, just on that note, is the the, the identification of of the these resurrected and uh, the dying and resurrected gods who ultimately have to make this ascent. It, typified, right? It's 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 sort of an analogy of that ascent is the resurrection. There mm -hmm. they are corresponded typically to sun gods themselves. That's right. So it's almost like the sun rising through the planetary spheres or or or, or moving through the zodiac. Mm -hmm. It's very that, that that kind of thing is very interesting to me because I've always wondered where where that fit in, you know, because it's very it's very clear. Uh you look at you know the story of Christ. He's got 12 12 apostles you know right. it's, it's, it's and that's what he says about the sacrifice when they sacrifice those 12 prisoners of war proclus says this isn't an act of anger on the part of uh, um achilles he says they represent the train of gods all 12 follow zeus in this train you know so those 12 joining the patroclus is the same it's the same just like you're describing yeah, I'm I'm beyond excited to read this book, man. I think you'll love it. <laughs> I think I will too. Um, I think I'll be sure the, you get a copy. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure most of the people that listen to this podcast are going to be super uh, super stoked on it. Um, so there are there are a couple of um, canned questions that I ask every guest that comes on. Okay. So you're you're obviously an experienced ritualist with the background uh, that you've got. Having having come through a, a hermetic pathway, uh, at, at least at some point, also being being a mason. So, how is it now at this point in your trajectory and your you know your researches and all that stuff? How do you experience magic? How does either you know how does that present itself in your life? Is it a day to day thing? I mean, what what does it look like? Because a lot of would be practitioners, what what's what's in their head is movie magic. You know, like mm -hmm. Harry Potter wand waving and it's, you know, very, very literal. So how do you, I like to ask people how they experience magic. Um, well, my, I'll tell you on two different levels. Um, I ritualize everything, everything. Um, I rise with the sun. I go to bed when the sun goes down. You know, I'm, I go to bed early to try. I, I feel like uh, magic Theurgy is effective to the degree that it imitates demiurgy. Uh, and Ustavenis makes this point. He says, you don't want to be a radical exception that just is unique and doesn't fit in. You want to participate in the this cosmic drama. Uh, so magic for me is largely participatory, participating in what I want to embody and experience. And on the other level, is that experience itself. It, um, it, it's not quantifiable. So it's 100% predicated on qualia, the qualities of things. Uh, and, and I think the real name of the game with, with magic is qualia. What is, what is the quality something carries? Uh, you've probably heard the word synthemata, which it means similar to co correspondences in the Golden Dawn. But in that worldview, it's not just that that the lion and the rooster correspond to the sun. It's not a mnemonic system that you look at and it tells you, oh, yeah, that, that corresponds to the sun. I should think the sun. No, it is the sun. And the sun itself, it is whatever is above it, each one participating in the next. 
you know, so for me, magic is very much um, uh, how to participate in these qualities. uh, If that makes sense. That's a tough question. Tough to answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's an excellent answer. Um, You know, there's really no wrong answer, but I, uh, I really like that one. (laughs) Um, The, the, um, the other question that I ask is, so for anybody that has listened to the podcast today and, uh, you know, we've gone over, uh, pretty broad, but, but very, but also very specific, uh, uh, topic or types of material here. Um, what would you recommend in the way of three books? Uh, I feel like you and I are more like book guys, you know, um, Right. So sometimes I'll say like, okay, if you can't think of a book, throw in a YouTube channel or some like a documentary that you saw, but I think we can handle literature. Um, Three books that people who are listening want to find out more, a beginner phase. What would you recommend that they dive into? For beginners, that's a tough one. Um, Greg Shaw's book, Theurgy and the Soul, The Neoplatonism of Iamblichus. That one is essential. That's what really, really opened my eyes to what was going on with this theurgic Neoplatonic model. Um, Algus Who's Divinis. And and I know you said for beginners, but if you stick with it, you'll get it. It'll click. You know, just you might have to read it twice, but his book, Philosophy as a Rite of Rebirth from Ancient Egypt to Neoplatonism. Incredible. And he covers all of his bases. Uh, If you've got a phone in your hand, it shouldn't be any problem to Google some of those terms he uses. Uh, There are paper after paper after paper um, from from scholars expounding these terms. So you might read a little bit more than you want to, but I think that's those two books are absolutely essential if you want to grasp theurgy as a whole, not just as uh, as a um, as an oddity, as a, as some weird thing the Neoplatonists were doing, which is often how it's presented, especially by right. strictly Platonic scholars. And I think the third one um, would be Peter Kingsley, his book Reality, which is a big, thick book. Um, but it's in two parts. Part one is breaking down Parmenides and the fragments. And part two is breaking down Empedocles, his fragments, and showing how these relate to uh, ancient religion and how it relates to Neoplatonism. Because uh, the, the initial impression when you first approach this stuff is that after Plato, like we talked about earlier, there's this vast departure from what philosophers were doing prior to that. It's pretty clear that philosophers were ritualists and mystics before we got to people like, you know, uh, Kant. And, and in modern day philosophy, people think Kant. And, uh, and as much as I love Nietzsche, Nietzsche, and he, but, you know, there was a lot going on prior to that that did not have such a, a materialist view of the world. And while the materialist view is, is, necessary at times it's it's not it's not absolute uh, and the, your perception of a material and this is what i mean by quality qualia your perception of a thing is more powerful than the thing itself your impression of a thing is more powerful than the number of atoms that compose it that's really useless information it's nice to know it but when we're talking about human experience and your ability to participate in the quality of something uh, it's more important. And, and Kingsley Kingsley does a great job of showing uh, how these worlds are really the same. um, But there's just been vast departures right up to, to even uh, orthodoxy. You know, he brings in discussions of, of the transitions into Christianity from Neoplatonism but I think those three books, uh, uh, Greg Shaw's Theurgy and the Soul, Algus Utzdeveni's uh, Philosophy as a Road of Rebirth, and Peter Kingsley's Reality. If you get those books down, I promise you will never look at the world and your own experience of that world in the same way. Amazing. 
That's awesome. Um, I love all that. The uh, it reminds me also what you're talking about the nature of reality and and kind of the the materialist assessment of what's going on. That uh, there's there's a line from Voyage of the Dawn Treader where um, where uh, one of the character goes. Um, he says something like, "In our world, the sun is a is a gigantic ball of of flaming gas." And mm-hmm. uh, another character, the rebuttal was, "That's not what the sun is. That's what it's made of." That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the perfect um, explanation of that. But and I, I, that, I'm glad you said that. Whenever you were talking about the sun earlier, I had this. Uh, I was about to, to say um, the same thing about it being materially. It's a ball of gas, but experientially, it's more than that. It's it's much more than that. The dispenser of life and light. That's right. <laughs> right. And what what would anything be without those things? I like to say that it's the vice regent of the one on the physical plane from our perspective on earth. You know, um, one, a point Ustavenis makes that I, I love, he, he talks about how the transition from a geo-referential to a heliocentric model, how detrimental that is to the practice of, of magic and the psyche, to the practice of theurgy. It doesn't matter that that the the sun is at the center our experience of it is that it goes around us and that's whether you believe in the gods or not uh just i'll just use this language that's why we exist in this 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 kind of a framework this kind of a template where the sun rises in the east and sets in the west that communicates something to us about our soul um otherwise the world wouldn't look this way from a divine perspective, from a physics perspective, of course, all planets orbit stars, you know, but that knowledge does nothing for, for your soul. I truly believe that it does something for your intellect, but our soul is different than that. And, and it's wrapped up, whether it be just from the mere fact that humans have been observing this for eons and eons and eons, and it's encoded in us it's, I mean, not, I, I hate to say encoded in us because I feel like that's already kind of leaning towards this amalgamatory qual- quantitative approach. But, uh, but I do believe that nothing is accidental and we experience the world in this way because it, it is telling us something about us and about our experience here. Yeah, it, absolutely. I think, um, <sighs> You have to, well, this is the thing for me, right? I, I, the georeferentiality thing, actually, I was introduced to that by via Jamie. And, and it's something that, that I, I kind of lean a little heavily on now um, because it, the brilliance of, of that distinction, it doesn't deny either. And right. that's what's missing from the modern equation. Like we've come so far, we could have both. We choose to have one. It's mm-hmm. always one or the other with us. It's like, you know, uh, geocentrism or heliocentrism. It's it's not, you know, and we're almost there. Uh, and I think that constantly outsourcing the locus of reality, saying that the subjective cannot be real, mm-hmm. cannot be trusted, rather than giving them both separate but into or or cooperating domains of truth that's exactly what i mean by quantity and quality right Uh, the quantity is it's heliocentric but the quality of it is geo-referential and it's uh you're exactly right that's yeah and i'm but the, the 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 consequence i think of of now consistently deferring to materialism and removing ourselves or our subjective experience as something that is valid. Right. We, we interiorize it to an even further degree and thereby isolate it. It's no longer participatory. It's merely experiential. It's like we're sitting in front of a gigantic fucking movie screen, watching Mm -hmm. reality around us. And what happens is it makes us insane. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, we it, the insanity that occurs is a species of dissociation from the spiritual 
analog, right? It, right? This is an analogy of spiritual principles. The entire wheelwork of creation, as you were pointing out, right. we're we're now removed out of that. We don't have a part in that. And that plays perfectly to what you were saying earlier. You know, it's a very Neoplatonic, it's also a very hermetic idea of mm-hmm. the rectification of the sphere of sensation, making the microcosm as like to the macrocosm as possible right. as the, the yep, first yep. step towards spiritual transcendence. Man, I really um I really uh, love I really love having you on. I uh, I hope that um we get to do this again. Do you have any final words on uh on on anything that we've talking uh, that we've spoken about today or, or do you have anything that you uh, that you want to plug? Um, if, if you're interested in, in this discussion, I think you would absolutely enjoy the book I have coming out with inner traditions in December, theurgy theory and practice. And it, uh, it looks at all of this that we're talking about. It takes the Neoplatonists at their word, um, and goes back to Homer to try and figure out what they're doing and why. And, uh, in my opinion, it's my best work to date. I'm really proud of the, the, the work and, I couldn't have done it without reading those books I mentioned earlier. So uh, get those books, you know, and, and if you like those, take a look at what I have coming out. I think you'll appreciate it. Awesome. P.D. Newman, thank you so much, man. Thank you, Ike. It's a pleasure. 